Today begins the second week of Advent, the first season of the church calendar. We might better say, however, Advents, because there are two of them. <clears throat> One we look at as, as kind of through a microscope, because it, it's happened, it's, it has come, it's kind of on the lab table in front of us, it's what we call Christmas. But the other one, it, it's, uh, it's as we, we see it as if it's through a telescope yet because it's, it's still out there and we don't know, only God knows when it's actually going to come. But both of those advents, the one past and the one future, uh, are, are both God prophesied, they're God promised, they're God guaranteed, and they're God fulfilled. Um, Steve last week talked about um, the Abrahamic covenant being as a, um, like our, our source of righteousness because we all look for that acceptance and approval and it comes, ultimately only comes from God. We can get it from other people, but, but, but that doesn't last. And both Advents play a, a role in that. I'm going to state it just a little bit differently than Steve did. The first, the first Advent is, um, they, they both, they do, both play a pray a part in our problem between God and us, and, and that's sin, right? That's, that's our problem. Uh, the first advent is the reality of King Jesus coming in a manger to, when he grew up, went to the cross, save us from the penalty of our sin. We're, we're forgiven, the penalty's been paid, we're not going to have to pay it. But that second advent, when that one comes, is going to have King Jesus come not as a baby, but to come as the ruler of the universe. And he's going to save us from the very presence of sin at that point. So both advents have a big role in our biggest problem with God, our, our sin. And as we live these, uh, I'm calling it uh, the tweener years. We're, we're living between the two advents. We live with the joy of the forgiveness of what we're celebrating in a couple weeks, Christmas, the first coming of Jesus. And we live with the hope of never having to deal with sin again, ever. Because when he comes, he will come as a ruler and he will remove the very presence of sin. And that king ruler is the promise of God himself that we want to look at this morning. Again, for the second week in a row, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we're in a four-week series entitled Promises, Promises, and last week Steve tackled the promise to Abraham, and this morning my privilege is to, uh, to dig into the promise to David by God. And our passage is from the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. And by this time in the biblical story, God has rescued his people from slavery He's established them in the land that he had been promising them that he would give to them, and he has set them up uh, to be ruled by kings under his direction. And the first king, Saul, was a total bust. So God replaced him with a second king, David. And in our passage, David has been king for about 10 years when we come to this point, uh, he's created some rest for the land by conquering a bunch of the enemies uh, around them. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem, and thus he's established that city as the city of God for God's people. Now, what I'd like to do is um, I'd like to lay out, before we start this morning, sort of a skeletal frame 
of God's salvation history plan. So let's, let's turn this stage into a timeline. And this podium right here is, is sort of ground zero, all right? This is uh, the year zero, and let's just say it's the, it's the years that Jesus was here on earth from whenever he was born, there's a debate about that, to, it wasn't zero, by the way, um, to whatever, 30 or 40 years right here in this span. So this is ground zero, this is Jesus on earth. And way over there, and I won't go there now, but a uh, little bit beyond the trees and in that little area over there, that's today, that's 2019. That's where we live. So we've got 2,000 years between ground zero, roughly, and where we live today. Now, all the way back over here, another 2,000 years, but this time in this direction, is, um, this is Steve from last week. He, he's a lot older than he looks, believe me. He's, <laughs> he's very well preserved. Uh, but, but he was, he was uh, talking, he, he talked about Abraham and the covenant. God came to Abraham and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a nation from you, and we know that's the nation of Israel. And he says, then from that nation, there's going to come a seed, and Paul said that's a singular seed, which is Jesus Christ, going to come a seed uh, through whom all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know that to be Jesus. But now, way back beyond there, I, I don't know, Hembry Road, uh, coming someplace out there, God made his first promise, and that was his promise right after the fall when he was cursing Satan, and he said, okay, from this woman that you tempted, from her, one of her offspring is going to actually come and crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head, and we know that to be Jesus, and Jesus actually did that when he went to the cross and came out of the tomb alive. He crushed Satan's head. Satan's had it already. I know you don't feel like it and it doesn't look like it, but he's, he's had it. It's, he, he's done. And then um, somewhere back here, maybe Mansell Road, God made another promise, and it was to Noah. And he said, I'm never going to do this again. I, never a flood on the earth again. And I think one of the reasons was God made a promise back way before the flood that he was going to send that seed, that offspring of Eve, to earth to solve the sin problem, and he had to make sure that there was still an earth here for that seed to come and solve the problem. So God made that promise. Then we got the promise here to Abraham. Let's go halfway to ground zero, right about here. And that's, that's where we are this morning in our text, 1,000 B.C. So uh, it's David, and David, God is going to come to David and say, I'm going to put an heir of you on the throne forever. Now we'll talk about that a lot this morning. But let's go about halfway back here now to Abraham. And God made a, another covenant, and that was with Moses, remember? The law everything to do with the law in Exodus and, and Leviticus. And basically that law was there to show us that we bootstrap people cannot figure out how to obey God and how to please God and how to live the way he wants us to live. Paul says it was a tutor to bring us to Christ. It showed us, he said, if, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know the sin of coveting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So God brought it in to show us, you can't do it. You can't do it on your own. So we got that there. It's, about, it's roughly halfway between these two. David, let's go halfway to here again, and we've got a prophet by the name of Jeremiah, and he comes and he says, yeah, that one doesn't work, that old covenant over there. God's going to do a new covenant, and he's going to write the law, not on tablets of stone, but he's going to write them on, on, on tablets of your heart so that you'll be able to live out the way God wants you to live from the inside out, from the heart, with a new power of the Spirit of God in you, rather than back here just trying to be the person who can sort of gut it out and keep the rules and somehow obey God on your own. And Jeremiah said, no, we know that doesn't work, so God's going to do it a different way. And then we come to ground zero, and Jesus comes, 
and he inaugurates this in place of that. Now, part of this whole promise of God is 2 Samuel 7. All of what I've sketched from Genesis 3.15, way out there, has been done. All of the prophecies are fulfilled. Except one. The promise in our passage this morning that a son of Abraham, a son of David, would come and sit on David's throne forever. He did come, right? We celebrate that. That's the first advent. That's, that's here. He came. And he came as a king. But instead of putting him on a throne, they put him on a cross. But next time, make no mistake about it, he's going to be on a throne. Now, this is a long passage. It's uh, 29 verses. So to help us get the message just a little bit more easily and quickly, I'm going to read it a bit differently than we usually read our scripture passage up here. So I want you to watch for what I have bolded and italicized as you see it come up on the screen. And also, every, in between once in a while, I'm going to make a couple of comments, but we'll get through the entire passage in, in not, not too long. Now, uh, the plot is really simple. There's three scenes in this chapter. 2 Samuel 7. And the first scene, very short, gives us the setting. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house, but the ark of God is in a tent. To David, the discrepancy between those two just felt wrong on so many fronts. And Nathan knows exactly where David's head and heart is in this, so we read, and Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, in everyday words, he's saying, sounds good to me, and I'm sure it'll be okay with God, too. Build away. Just so happens Nathan was wrong. So in scene two, God talks to Nathan. By the way, this is the longest recorded monologue of God in the scriptures since he talked to Moses. Verse four, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Can you, can you imagine? Nathan, we need to talk. Can you imagine what Nathan's thinking at that point? God says, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, God's point is that ever since the Exodus, 400 years earlier, the tent has worked just fine. God's been a God on the move with his people. And temples were for deities who were tied down. And that's not, in fact, later Stephen will talk about, he'll quote a prophet and he'll say, do you not know that the, the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool? That's what his house is. Now, God will eventually allow David's son to build the temple because David wanted it. It wasn't wrong. 
It just wasn't God's idea. And then verses 8 to 16 really cut to the chase. God is the subject here of 23 verbs in this message as he rehearses what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will be doing for and in David. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the, and don't miss this phrase over and over again, Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, that is a very cursory rehearsal of David's and God's already very long and dramatic history together. So we, we can't go into what that, what that was. But now the verbs change, and it's not past. Now it's looking to the future. It's like God saying, you know, all that stuff that you and I, David, know that we did together in the past and I did for you and in you and all that sort of thing, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Same promise as to Abraham last week when Steve was speaking. Um, and Steve said last week, I, I love this phrase, Abraham didn't have a great resume. And uh, David's isn't a lick better. But you know, God, God works with what he has. And it's us, right? I mean, he, he could have chosen to do all his work through angels. They'd have been a lot easier to work with. But he didn't. He, he chose us. And in verse 10 he says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall, be, he'll, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Theologians call this the, the Davidic covenant. Did you notice this one-sidedness? It's all God and only God. We, we can't miss all of the I wills that just litter the verbal landscape of this passage. There's not a one, if you, not a one. It's what's called an unconditional covenant, just like with Abraham. See, both, both Abraham and David are, are basically along for the ride. They do nothing. It's all God. So God promises to give David a permanent house. Now, that word house, it's used 12 times here in this passage. It means either a literal, physical building, 
which David wanted to build for God and Solomon will build for God. Or when God's talking about it, he's talking about a dynasty or a legacy which he is promising to build for David. It's kind of just like the House of Windsor, right? That's, that's, it's a dynasty. So in scene one, Nathan says, build away. In scene two, God says, no way. And now we come to a one-verse narrative transition where Nathan talks to David, and it says, in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, read forever. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods, and you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken and your name will be great. You'll be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying I will build you a house. Therefore, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you, for you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, even though David speaks, you get the impression that he's almost speechless, right? It's, it's like he, he blurts out, first of all, just to say something. Who, who, who am I, oh, Lord God, that you've, you've brought me thus far? And then he says a few other words. And after that, he also says, and, and what more can David say to you? He's just, he's beside himself. But then we see his heart. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. Who am I? Nobody. What more can I say? Nothing. 
It's like he's saying, this has everything to do with you and nothing to do with me. This phenomenal gift comes straight from and only from your heart. It is all of grace. One commentator wrote this, the great truth is that God is his own motive and that his love is not drawn forth by our merits but wells up by its own energy like a perennial fountain. God is self-moved to bless. And David gets it. Even though he doesn't know what to say, he says exactly the right thing. He praises God. He lifts up who God is as the great God of the universe. He rehearses the great things that God has done. And, and then, don't, don't miss this, and then with humble boldness, he tells God to make sure he does what he has just promised to do. One writer said this. This wasn't a passive prayer that said, well, God, do whatever you want to do. This wasn't an arrogant prayer that said, well, God, let me tell you what to do. This was a bold prayer that said, God, here's your promise. Now I trust you to fulfill it grandly and to be faithful to your word. Uh, the words, therefore your servant, toward the end, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you, is David saying, I'm praying this because you promised it. This is not like Gideon and the fleeces. This is, not, it's, this is not asking for proof. This is David saying that God is so faithful and so unchanging that when he promises something, it's as good as done. One author wrote this. There is no presumption in taking God at his word. I love this. True prayer catches up the promises that have fallen from heaven and sends them back again as feathers in the arrows of its petitions. Isn't that great? I love that picture. I'm going to sound like Heimler now. Um, he's the logician among us, you know. He's, he's used this syllogism thing a number of times in his messages. You teach logic courses, right? Yeah, yeah. That's why you don't want to talk to him. See, the logic of David's faith was not complicated. It was a simple syllogism. Major premise, God and God's words are truth and they never change. Minor premise, God promised these good things to me. Conclusion, duh. It's going to happen. But don't miss the key phrase here, the underpinning of all of this. It's, there's a rock on which David is standing, and it's a rock, not sand, on which he has planted his feet. Eleven times in these 12 verses, and by the way, never again in Samuel, he cries out, O Lord God. Never again in the book of Samuel does that phrase, as it's written there, come out of anybody's mouth. I really like the NIV translation better in this case. It says, O Sovereign Lord, which I think gathers up the meaning of those two words, Lord and God, much better than the ESV does. See, David is both speechless and bold because he knows 
who he is dealing with, and he repeats that 11 times. I'm dealing with the Lord God, the sovereign Lord. He's the sovereign creator. He's the ruler of the universe. He, he is the I am, the one who has no beginning way back there and no ending way out there, which we could get, you know. We don't get that. We were talking about this in our community group this past Thursday night, and Kate David said, you know, I remember one of my parents telling me this fact, that God had no beginning. He, he just isn't. She said, I remember going to bed at night as a 10-year-old and just laying there and thinking, how does that work? I, and I said, Kate, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. This isn't very encouraging, but you were that way at 10. I'm still that way at 80. I mean, how does that work? I've, I've told you guys before, I think, that if I ever walked away from Christianity, it would be because of that. Because it was just, I, 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 just spend some time thinking about that time and force yourself to do it for 15 minutes. And you just go round and round and round like this because all we know is what's stuff that has begun. And God has just always simply been is. He is the totally faithful and loving father of his children, not because, not because he learned to be faithful and loving, but because he is in his very nature faithfulness and love. As a God who is, that's who he is, was, and ever will be. He cannot be unfaithful or unloving to us. It's impossible. So David knows that everything he has just heard from God in the present about the future is in reality present because it's as good as done, because it's the word of God. So scene one, Nathan says, build away. Scene two, God says, no way. And in scene three, David says to God, please, your way. Now let's talk about this Davidic covenant. There's another piece of this timeline we, we built up here earlier, and I didn't put it in because it would have complicated it too much. But back in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, Jacob, um, on his deathbed, gave a blessing to each of his 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And the one I want to point out is in Genesis 49.10 about his son Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. Now, obviously, these words indicate a ruler. And we know that to whom it belongs, because we have the benefit of looking back and seeing history, points almost 2,000 years ahead to Jesus. He is the one who, who will be. So God told Abraham, go back over there, he told Abraham that he would build a nation from Abraham, Israel, and from that a seed would come, Jesus, who would bless the families of the, of the earth. Here God narrows it down in Genesis 49, not to the nation of Israel, but to the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, and he says, You're gonna, a king's going to come from you. Remember, Jesus is called in the scriptures the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in our passage in this morning in 2 Samuel, God narrows it down even more to a family in that tribe of Judah, to the family of David. So we go from a, a, a nation to a tribe of that nation to a family of that tribe. 
So this chapter sort of ushers in a, a, a new day of sorts. It's Saul's dynasty is extinct. It's gone. And David's begins. And David's son Solomon will sit on the throne. And as God promised, he, he disciplined Solomon when he sinned, which was a lot. This guy had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Makes me tired. Uh, he got most of those concubines by making treaties with other countries, and they would kind of throw a princess in along with the deal. And they would come to live in Jerusalem, and they'd bring their gods with them. So Solomon would build an altar to their gods, and they would say, hey, come, come worship my God with me. And he ended up doing that right next to the temple in Jerusalem. You see, Solomon ruled over all tribes of the nation of Israel as one nation, but when he died, he left such a mess because of his idolatry that the nation divided in, into two. Ten tribes went north and two tribes in the south. Judah and Benjamin, but it's called the, the nation of Judah in the south. And counting Solomon's sons, Judah had 20 kings, all from David's house. That's over 400 years for one dynasty so far. By contrast, Israel had nine different dynasties over just 200 years, half the time. By the way, the House of Windsor, we think that's a long dynasty. That's a mere 118 years. And that 400-year story of Judah is mostly bleak. Only eight of the 20 kings followed God. They were mired in, idult in idolatry. They, God called that spiritual adultery. In fact, he called them whores. And at the end of that 400 years, God brings the Babylonians to attack and level the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple and they knock down the walls and they, they, they leave only the, they carry off most of the people to Babylonia 900 miles away and they leave only the old and the sick to try to survive in this, you know, destroyed place. And for the next 100, 400 years, no king. It looked like the forever of 2 Samuel 7 was just a bit of an exaggeration. Unless you were one of the few who believed the prophets. Because Isaiah, in about 700 B.C., um, wrote this, familiar. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And this next one I love. Same prophet, Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Th this image here is great. Only a stump will remain, Isaiah says, of a devastated tree. Now, Jesse is David's father, so this refers to the Davidic line, and he's saying there's going to come a time when it's going to look dead. And after this Babylonian captivity, when God brought them back, until the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years, it looked like a dead stump. There were no kings. But then, <laughs> a little green shoot. You've seen that happen, right, on a stump? You know, it's here, it's up here, but it looked totally dead. But all of a sudden, this little green shoot kind of starts to come up. That was the shoot that would become a mighty tree and rule and cover the world. Jesus. Listen to the angel speak to Mary. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, don't miss two things here. Interestingly, um, when this shoot appeared in Jerusalem, this whole drama of the forever stuff played itself out again in two ways. Number one, just like the earlier kings that sat on the physical throne of David for those 400 years, just like God promised they were disciplined, Jesus also bore God's discipline as the king on the cross. Except there's one huge, unimaginable difference. They bore it for their own sins. Jesus bore it for yours and mine. And then secondly, on Good Friday afternoon, it looked like the throne of David had become a stump again. The shoot, capital S, was lying on a cold slab in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, dead. But on Sunday morning, the shoot of all shoots sprouted again. And for those who believed, hope lived again. So we, we stand here in 2019 as, as tweeners. We look back at the first advent, our ground zero, and we look back with joy and celebration, and that's what this is about this month. But we stand here and we... We look ahead with expectation as well. Wherever that is, way out there someplace or right around the corner. I can't see there, John, anything going on around the corner there? Uh, we don't know when that is, right? So we look in two directions during Advent. We look at two events. And those two events give us two reasons to with David say, who am I that you should do that for me? And what can I say to you? I don't have the words to talk about the wonder and the, honestly, the incredulity and the gratitude and the praise that is just, just welling up inside of me and, and it feels like my heart wants to explode because of what you've done and what you've promised to do. And but we're able also from here to, to look way back. We can come back here and we can look back to Genesis 3.15 and, and see that that offspring of Eve has come and crushed the head of the serpent. We can see that the, the promise about the flood has been 
it's, there's been no flood. God kept his word there. We can, we can see that, yes, the Israel became a nation, and the seed came from that nation to bless all the families of the globe as it is happening right now. And, yes, we know that now a man has come who carried out this Mosaic covenant perfectly. Nobody else could do it, but he came, and because of that, he's the one that can eventually come and create a new covenant for us. But before that, we sit here, and we know that David's line is alive and well because he has come once, and God has promised He's going to come again as king. And this promise of Jeremiah has been fulfilled because this person at ground zero has come and he has said to his men in the upper room that last night, this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many. It's all been fulfilled up till now. And this person right here is the one to whom all of that was pointing. And it was fulfilled. Because of that, we can look forward to that as a done deal. Our, our community group is studying J.I. Packer's uh, book, Knowing God. And this past week, we studied God unchanging. Um, and that's where our confidence lies, right? He was who he is. He is who he will be. He will be what he was. He never changes. And exactly the same can be said of his truth. It never changes. Our sovereign Lord promises to be absolutely reliable. I think I believe this next, next statement. There's a couple of guys in this room who will check me out on that. I think I believe that every promise of God is a prophecy and every prophecy is a promise. I'm looking at Jay right now. <laughs> He's not shaking his head yes or no. But I just think with God, what he says, it's, it's going to be done. And if it's a prophecy or a promise, it's going to be done. So let's, let's, right here, when God says to you, my grace is sufficient for you, when he says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. When he says, cast all your burdens upon me, for I care for you. When he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have called you by name. You are mine. All things work together for good to those who love God. And when Jesus said, I am preparing a place for you and will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When he says those kinds of things to us, we, we can look at them as reliable and as sure to be fulfilled as his promises to Abraham and to David. Granted, he may fulfill some of those promises in a little different way than you would want the promise to be fulfilled, but in the end, when you eventually see the promise fulfilled the way he wants to do it, you will say, you were right. It was best. You were God in my life for my good, which he says he always is. 
because it's all, it's all based on the one of whom Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. He was, and he is, and he will be your king. Your king willing to come as a helpless baby, totally dependent on a teenage mother. Your king facing every possible kind of temptation for you and winning for you. Your king willing to die for you as a criminal. Your king able to beat death and walk out of that cave tomb alive for you. Your king now living inside of you and able to do abundantly beyond for and with you anything that you could ever ask or imagine to think of. And your king, who is now poised and ready to come and get you the moment the Father says, go. And your king, who when he comes for you, will make your greatest dreams seem pretty paltry and of not much consequence as he gives you the greatest dream and gift of all, which is to see him face to face and then experience fully what all of that means, not just for a season, but forever. And it's at that moment when our cup will truly overflow and we will know what true, unadulterated generosity looks like. And we'll fall on our faces and we'll realize that never again will we have to cry out, come, Lord Jesus, because it'll all be done. Total redemption will have taken place. We'll never again battle Satan. We'll never again battle sin. We'll never again battle our flesh. We'll never again battle the world. Our king, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham and the son of Adam and the son of God, will sit on a throne and reign forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit and all of God's sons and daughters said, you pray with me? Our Father, um, if we could really grasp this, we would be like David, speechless and on our faces before you, grasping for words. And with David, we would be repeating over and over, O Sovereign Lord, this Advent, as we celebrate your son's first coming, would you please carry us farther down the path of grasping what all this means, farther down the path towards speechlessness and awe and just unable to cry out anything but O oh, Sovereign Lord. 
And Lord Jesus, would you come quickly? And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. At this table, we remember and celebrate the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated when he came to earth the first time to fulfill all of what we've looked into this morning. And next, meet, Matt, next week, Matt will uh, walk us through what it meant for him to carry out that covenant. But this morning, as you eat the bread and, and, and you drink the cup, remember that his path to sitting on that Davidic throne forever was by way of hanging on the cross, which must have seemed to him like forever. As he endured the discipline of his father, not for himself, but for you and for me. So if you're a person here this morning who knows that that is you, that you are in the family of God, and that your sin penalty has been taken care of and you look forward to the very presence of sin being gone someday, this is your table. We invite you to come and worship.